0: Today's scripture reading is Exodus chapter 6, verse 28, through chapter 7, verse 13. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of, his hand, out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh and it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said this is the word of the Lord. Good morning.
1: My name is Dave Theobald. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Baptist Church. And if you're uh, here visiting for the first time, uh, let me just add my word of welcome to those who have already welcomed you um, to just say that we're glad that you're here and trust that you've been blessed uh, already by worshiping with us. To, to our returning guest, it's so glad, to, it's so good that you're uh, back with us and it's been nice to get to know you all. Uh, we're going to turn once again to God's word. And um, if, you, if you didn't make it in time to, to turn there, um, and if you don't have a Bible, you can, you can find Exodus as the second book of the Bible. Uh, you can find it in the, the pew Bibles that are just in front of you, um, I think probably around page 49 or something. But we've been working our way through this uh, very interesting book, the book of Exodus. It's it's a story of the second greatest rescue mission in human history. And for the last couple of chapters, I'll just try to bring you up to speed a little bit. The narrative has actually stalled out quite a bit. Um, It's stalled out mainly because of the unbelief of Moses and the people of Israel. And we got to listen in last week as the Lord, in, in his great kindness and mercy and long-suffering, he spoke words of reassurance to Moses and uh, therefore also to the people. And the Lord was kind to just reaffirm to them who he was and what he had, um, what he had promised to do. But at the end of the day, he had given Moses a charge. And that was a duty to be obeyed, as we saw. That was, um, that was what Moses had to focus on here at the end. He had to just go ahead and do what it was that the Lord was calling him to do and commissioning him to do. Um, Moses and Aaron have been sent by the Lord to go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to demand that he release God's people whom he had enslaved for many many years he was to let God's people go and so we arrive at chapter seven which actually sounds quite familiar to chapters four and chapters five it's a bit of deja vu if you're paying attention it seems like we've gone back to square one and that expression back to square one do you know where that expression comes from do you know its origin it's a reference, actually, to that classic children's game, Snakes and Ladders. I, the title of this sermon is an allusion to, to that same game, although, once again, this happens all too frequently. Um, after I had published the title, I discovered another cultural discrepancy. Okay, I grew up in Canada, and uh, there the game was called Snakes and Ladders. But here in the U.S., I I realized it's marketed as chutes and ladders. Apparently, uh, snakes didn't pull very well among American toddlers. Uh, I I can understand that completely. After all, God has put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, so it stands to reason that uh, kids would probably not be interested in playing a board game like that. But love them or hate them, you probably hate them. Snakes are crawling all over our passage today, and they serve really as pawns in a colossal power struggle. You know, the object in snake in um, sorry, shoots and ladders is to see who can get to the top spot, right? You you want to get to that that last square, that top spot, and there's a constant jockeying uh, for position. There's a lot of rising and falling, but ultimately only one person can claim that top spot. Uh, Well, we're going to experience a a similar kind of contest in this chapter, and actually for the next six chapters, in fact. The, The ten plagues, as we refer to them, of which this present sign in our passage, the sign of the snake, is really just a preview of all of these plagues that are coming All of this taken together, these many, many chapters are going to be one prolonged power struggle to see who gets top spot. And to put this another way, the ultimate question in these chapters is, who is God? Who is God? Who is supreme? Who is in control of all of these events? And this is not just the central question in this text. This is also the key question in your life, I would propose. The question, the, the key question in your life is, who is going to ascend to the top spot? It's a question, I think, that deserves uh, very serious consideration. And thankfully, our passage today provides us with a, a perfect opportunity to, to consider this question and hopefully by God's grace, to provide the correct answer. But this passage helps us because it, it uh, presents to us kind of three possible answers to the question, who is God? Three possible, possible options here, and, and we'll see these through the three main characters. Okay? So we'll look at these three main characters with this question in view, who is God? Uh, We'll ask that of Moses, we'll ask that of Pharaoh, and then we'll ask this of Yahweh, who has revealed himself as I am. Okay, so let's start with Moses. Let's check in with our main man. We understand that he's been down in the dumps lately, and when we last heard from him in chapter six, he he was trotting out all of the old excuses about how he wasn't the right man for the job and how he was a terrible communicator. In his, in his way of putting it, he had uncircumcised lips. You know, he was uh, tongue-tied, so to speak. He, in, in his mind, there was not a chance in the world that Pharaoh was going to listen to him. His own people who uh, would have been his most receptive audience, they didn't listen to him at all. And how much more so is Pharaoh going to ignore him? This is Moses' logic as he is wallowing in discouragement and in the depths of despair. And it's interesting to see how the Lord answers Moses' objection as chapter 7 opens. He says this, See, I have made you God to Pharaoh, and I, I didn't read that exactly as most of your Bibles have because the original he, Hebrew actually doesn't have the word like or as here. And apparently that makes translators a little uncomfortable. And I can understand why. Moses, you understand, is definitely not divine. No, no mere human is divine. However, he has been invested with divine authority as we've seen, and he has been entrusted with a divine message. From Pharaoh's perspective, what the Lord's saying is that Moses is going to be the face of God. Moses is going to be to Pharaoh the voice of God. He's going to bear the, the message of God, the commands of God. Moses is going to represent God in every way to this pagan king. And so we're asking in this passage, who is, who's God? Who's God? And the first answer that we come across is Moses. How do you feel about that? It's a little bit shocking, isn't it? It, it sounds so wrong. I'm, I'm worried that um, parts of this sermon might get clipped off in a viral, heretical video. It sounds, it sounds like blasphemy, doesn't it? Except... That this is something that's uttered by God Himself. So we, we want to be careful in charging God with blasphemy. God's direct presence, uh, the purity and the and the power of his, of his glory and of his holiness, as we saw spectacularly in the in the chapter on the burning bush, these these you understand are so potent that most of most of the time, God's presence in Scripture has to be mediated. People just can't stand to look upon God. It's a scary thing. It's, it's a fatal thing in most, in, in most instances. And so God, because he's so holy and powerful and glorious, his presence is often mediated. And as the Old Testament develops, we see that access to God is going to be mediated through a priestly office people designated as priests and high priests will have special access to God and will mediate God's presence to the people God will speak through prophets so the the whole office of the of, of prophecy is established in a way to mediate God's message to the people and what we have here in this passage especially but in Exodus is Moses and Aaron emerging as kind of early examples of prophets and priests. And I think that's one reason why we were given the genealogy in chapter 6. Because it establishes that both Moses and Aaron. This Moses and this Aaron are members of the household of Levi. And that is going to be a family that is going to be given the, the great responsibility and privilege of serving as priests to God and mediating God's presence to the people. So that's looking forward a little bit. But I also think it's helpful to look backwards just for a minute. Take a, take a review of some past history. Consider that in the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, we see him kind of at the climax of his creation just before day six, we, we see him deliberating about the creation of human beings. And we read this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God says, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And then the passage goes on to say that that's exactly what God did. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And there's a lot of uh, discussion in theology about what exactly it means for us to be made in the image and likeness of God. That's a that's a phrase that's really kind of pregnant with a lot of um, meaning and implication. There's a lot of aspects to it, like a like a diamond that you could look at. But one major component of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God is that we as human beings have what you might call representative rule. To be in the image of God means that we resemble him, yes, in all of the ways that are appropriate for human beings to resemble God. And it also means that we have dominion and we exercise rule as God's representatives in the world that he has created. In our person and and by our work, we're we're meant to show forth the glory of God to the rest of creation. That's God's intended design. That's the incredible blessing and honor and privilege that he has bestowed on mortals like us. And when the psalmist reflected on this reality in Psalm 8, he was just blown away he, he couldn't help but marvel he said what is, what is man that you are mindful of him that the son of man that you would have any kind of concern for him but he says yet this is, this is the reality of the thing you have made him a little lower than God that's, that's what the Hebrew Bible says in Psalm 8 you've made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor friends what i'm getting at here is that in some sense what the lord is saying about moses can be said about us he has made us like god maybe not to pharaoh in our case but certainly to our friends and our family certainly to our neighbors and to the nation's Consider that you might be the only representative and the only representation of God that your coworkers or your classmates may ever know or, or see. The Lord has been pleased to create us and to commission us to mediate his presence and his power. And he calls us a kingdom of priests. When you understand the Old Testament background to that you understand what a high honor and responsibility that is to be called priests of God mediating his presence and his power to the people that we encounter every day we're called to be prophetic witnesses to all that God has said and all that God has done So what does it look like? You're probably wondering, and I'm aware of the danger that this is all just kind of abstract in our minds, but let's get real practical for a second. What does it look like to be God to our neighbors, to the nations? I think we can learn from the example of Moses and Aaron. And simply put, there's probably lots of things that we could say, but let's just focus on the two that really come out clearly in the text. What it looks like is simply this, faithfulness and obedience. Faithfulness and obedience. By faithfulness, I mean allegiance to and accuracy in speaking precisely what God has said. So the Lord, you can see in verse 2, the Lord commands Moses, you shall speak all that I command you. And in Moses' case, that message to be transmitted to Pharaoh through one more person, uh, his brother Aaron, a little bit older by three years, and certainly the better communicator of the two. This is a, this is a grace that God has allowed. Um, God intends, though, that we would speak precisely what he has communicated. And that means... It means for Moses and Aaron, it means for us that we are not permitted to modify the message as we see fit. We're not entitled to water God's message down or to do the opposite, to kind of reduce it down and boil out the water so that it's, it's hard and thick and if that's, some, that's sometimes people's inclination is to err on the other side making things too hard and burdensome. But either way, we're not permitted to do any of that. We're to communicate exactly what the Lord has said in his word. We're to communicate exactly what the Lord has done in his providence for our salvation. Not too long ago, I I read um, Stephen Nichols' excellent biography on R.C. Sproul. And Sproul is someone that I consider to be one of the most faithful and gifted of the modern theologians and teachers. He um, passed away a few years ago, but his impact remains even here in our church. And Sproul grew up in the Pittsburgh area. And the place that he went to seminary was actually quite liberal at the time. And by that I mean that the this was this was a group of faculty and students that were nominally Presbyterian, but they were they were actively exchanging the truth of God's word for the latest theories in in science or in modern biblical studies. And by the grace of God and because of the faithfulness of some godly faculty members and and students, guys like uh, John Gerstner, Sproul made it through seminary with his faith intact, which sounds like a funny thing to say. Um, That shouldn't be a danger in seminary, but it was for him. And one of another help beyond Gerstner and his friends, another help was a card that he kept on his desk in seminary to regularly remind him. And this is what the card said. It said, You are responsible to believe and to teach what the Bible teaches and not what you would like for it to teach. That's a that's a helpful reminder. And we just have to admit to ourselves, even as people that love the truth you you have to know your own heart and my own heart which is to soften truth to to uh, fudge on it so that you can fudge in terms of your desires and your own flesh that's not our calling that that would constitute flagrant disobedience we're called to be faithful we're called to be obedient And I hope that you can understand how freeing this is. This is not a a burden to to be commissioned to say only what God has said and exactly what God has said. This is freeing. And remember the context here. This is the answer that the Lord gives to Moses' renewed objection that he's not a very good speaker. The Lord says this in the face of all of Moses' inadequacies. So this is encouraging. And here's the encouragement in case you, I I need to spell it out. You don't have to be a very good speaker. You don't have to be creative. You don't have to be a brilliant conversationalist. And by the way, we'll, we'll see this more clearly as the narrative unfolds. Here, here's another really important thing. The outcome doesn't depend on you and people's reception positive or negative of the message, doesn't depend on you. Friends, do you see how encouraging this is? This is the Lord's work. This is the work that he's doing, but he's commissioned you and me to be God in that situation. And we're called just to obey. And notice how Moses and Aaron's obedience is highlighted in the text. Look at verse 6. It says, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. So they're commended for their accuracy. That's the just as. It was exactly like God had, the Lord had commanded them. And they're commended for the, their obedience. And you can see the, the repeated emphasis here. Because we see it again in verse 10. Verse 10 says, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Obedience, friends, and faithfulness. Well, that's the first answer to that the text gives to our question, who is God? In one sense, Moses is. In one sense, you are. I am. God. Moses is God-imaged. God-imaged. There, you can finally fill in your blank if you've been waiting this whole time. If you've got a bulletin insert or um, whatever form that you get the sermon outline in, here's your first blank that you can fill in. Moses is God-imaged. God-imaged, and so are we. We are made in the image and likeness of God and we have the unspeakable privilege of going out into this world, this pagan world. And we get to showcase the glory of God. We get to speak the, the unspeakable uh, glory of the gospel and what God has done in Christ to save sinners like us. So brothers and sisters, I, I guess what I'm just saying is let's, be, let's do it. Let's, let's be faithful. Let's be obedient. Who, who is God? Who's God? Well, there's another possibility in this passage. And perhaps it's Pharaoh. Perhaps it's Pharaoh. We have to entertain that option, I suppose. And let me set this up by once again going back to Genesis. Okay, we saw how God created humanity, and how he gave us such a noble calling, how he crowned us with glory and honor. Mankind, we could say, has been exalted as if on a ladder. But Genesis 3 tells us the story of our, of our slide, and what a great slide it was. It's almost like you're going from the second last square all, back, all the way back to the first one. What a, a slide from such a great height. And interestingly enough, this descent happened on the back of a slippery snake. It says in Genesis 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And that serpent slithered up to our first parents and Adam and Eve and and seduced them. Told them the lie. Whispered, hissed that lie in their ear. That they could be like God. That that was the heart of the deception in Eden. That we as a human race could be God. It wasn't enough apparently for us to be made in the image of God. Even though that was an unspeakable kind of honor and privilege. No, uh, under the influence of Satan, we, we wanted more. We, we want to be God. We, we, want, we want more of the action. We, we want to we beat him out of the top spot. We, we want to generate our own glory. We don't want to reflect someone else's glory. And I say we because this is the story of fallen humanity ever since life has turned into kind of a, a cosmic struggle to decide who is going to be God. And this is the nature of idolatry. This is something that the Bible talks about a lot, is the tendency that human beings have to, to make things, to carve images, or just to take things, good even good gifts from God, things like family and money and sex and you name it. We can take anything and turn it into an idol. And Tim Keller, uh, he explains, I think, idolatry so well. He, he, he helps us understand that we can turn anything into an idol. Because an idol, simply put, is a, is a God alternative. It's a counterfeit God. And, and at the heart of our problem is the greatest kind of idolatry which is the idolatry of self. This is our, if we're honest, this is our biggest problem. We, we, we want to be God. We want that top spot for ourselves. And human beings down through, uh, throughout history have appeared to be subservient, you know, to whatever it is that they're worshiping. You, f- you can find people all over the place bowing down to different small G gods, But at the same time, you have to understand that these small g gods, these idols, are the product of human hands. Which means that the the gods that we make tend to be things that we can tame and that we can domesticate, that we can have under our control. Things, beings, that really don't demand too much of us. And so, again, if we're going to be really honest here with what's going on, despite all appearances, our biggest problem is we want to be God. Now, this is certainly the case with Pharaoh. And it's very easy for him in his position to kind of pursue that idolatry of self. In the Egyptian culture, you have to understand it was taken for granted that the Pharaoh was divine. Um, th- these kings, these pharaohs had divine status and divine power, divine privilege. They, they too would have a, a real clear understanding of what it means to be representative of gods. And you can see this all over the place if you study Egyptian history or, or even art and iconography. Um, my, my family and I were at the Corning, Corning Museum of Glass just a few weeks ago. And uh, they, have a, they have unbelievable exhibits. I've been saying this ever since I went back um, a couple weeks ago. Uh, we, This is a real gem uh, that's right in our backyard. And uh, I need to go there more. And maybe you do too. But it, what a wonderful collection of um, art and, and glass. And one of the things they have in their collection is this very rare, extremely rare, extremely old, um, sculpture, it's a glass, one of the earliest glass sculptures of King Amenhotep II, who many scholars believe was the pharaoh at the time um, of the Exodus, that this was the guy that Moses and Aaron encountered. And you can, s- you probably can't see here, but um, if you look closely, you can come up and look at this afterwards. You see on the headdress, something very common in uh an Egyptian design, especially for the pharaohs. And that is, uh, that is the form of a cobra, right, in the center of, of his headdress. And um, th- these pharaohs adopted the symbol of a snake as a symbol of their divinity, of their uh, power. It was a demonstration of their identity as being gods. And, and we have to, I think, understand something even more significant than that, don't we? This is this is a way for Pharaoh to identify with that ancient serpent, um, with their father, the devil. And in this confrontation between Pharaoh and Moses and Aaron, it's going to be very clear to see who is the seed of the woman and who is the seed of the serpent. Uh Pharaoh really leaves no doubt as to where he stands. So you're probably wondering how to fill in this next part of your outline. Well, here it is. Pharaoh is God imagined. God imagined. He, like every other natural man, refuses to have God rule over him. Pharaoh, like every other human being, desires to be God himself. And his... His lofty imaginations on this point really are on full display back in chapter 5 when he says to Moses, who is the Lord? And I don't know the Lord. And moreover, it makes no difference because I will not let Israel go. There, there, you see, there's no acknowledgement whatsoever of God. There's no desire to obey God, even if he did know him. Thus says the Lord, yeah, right, thus says Pharaoh. Remember that from the text. And to show his rule and his authority, Pharaoh imposed greater burdens on the people. And, and we have to understand that now in, as part of this cosmic struggle, this battle for, to answer the question, who is going to be God? And I really want you to, to understand what's going on here when we think about the greater, the increased burdens, okay? People experience greater persecution as the fallout of the conflict between Pharaoh and the Lord. That's what was going on. Pharaoh was going head to head with the Lord. And one of the ways that Pharaoh is fighting, it's dirty, but he's lashing out at the Lord's people. And I want you to understand, folks, that that that's an entailment of what it means to be God to the world. That's an entailment of what it means to identify with the Lord and to represent him. If you're a servant to to this master, then you need to prepare yourself to suffer. And, And while you suffer, you have to understand that people's beef isn't necessarily with you. People's beef is with God. But they will take it out on you. You're you're God to them, you're his representative. And so you will bear the, the brunt of people's enmity towards God. May the Lord help us to, first of all, expect this. But then when it comes to endure this, and even and even to rejoice as the Apostle Paul did when he understood it rightly, which is that what a what an incredible privilege it is to be able to suffer for the sake of Christ. Now back to Pharaoh and back to his palace. There's fixing to be a showdown. There, there's going to be a war of the gods, if you will. And ultimately, there's only going to be Uh, one winner, but that is going to be played out. It's going to take 11 major battles for the war to be won. The war could be won right away. But this war is going to um, be fought over 11 major battles. This is really just the first, but it's a biggie. You understand. The Lord has been preparing Moses and Aaron for this time, for the time when, Moses, or when Pharaoh will ask them to prove themselves. And they have just the sign to perform for him when he asks that. And by the way, just notice this. Sorry for all of the asides, but I, I want you to notice these really careful details in the text. Notice that Pharaoh says in verse 8, Prove yourselves. Prove yourselves. He's not asking for evidence of the existence of God. He's not asking for a miracle to prove that God is real and that he's powerful. No, he's demanding evidence that these guys are God's authentic messengers. And really, I think this is the intended purpose of many of the miracles in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. I think Sproul is also very helpful on this point. He says this, quote, God demonstrates his existence long before a single miracle is ever performed by anyone in scripture. The function of miracles is not to prove the existence of God, but to demonstrate and authenticate the messenger of God. So this, this is what Pharaoh's interested in. Are you guys the real deal? Are you authentic messengers of this God so Pharaoh demands that sort of proof and as I say they've got just the sign for him it's quite the statement we've already seen that a snake is the the symbol of the Pharaoh's uh, divinity of his authority well the sign that God gives to Moses and Aaron to perform for Pharaoh turns a staff into a snake you are you getting the picture here? And if you don't immediately get the picture, and if you don't see how this would hit Pharaoh, consider this helpful illustration from Phil Riken. He said, it would be like walking into the White House and wringing the neck of a bald eagle. Okay, you don't, you don't do that to an American. That bald eagle is the symbol of everything that we love and hold dear And what a statement it is to just snuff out the life of a bald eagle. And quite expensive, too, I think. But this, do you see, this is a challenge. This is a showdown. Pharaoh, you claim to be the snake guy. Well, how about this snake? The one question that needs to be determined is, who is God? Is it Pharaoh? Is it Yahweh? Is it you or is it the Lord? You see, because that's the fundamental question that needs to be asked and answered in your life. Maybe up to this point in your life, you've imagined that you, you're on top, you've got top billing, that you, you don't answer to anyone, you uh, refuse to have God rule over you or have his son rule over you, You're under the the delusion that you're the master of your own fate, that you're the captain of your own soul. But really, friend, that's all it is. It's just delusion. It's just vain imagination. You couldn't, nothing could be further from the truth. And And the delusion may actually continue for quite some time. For it certainly does that for Pharaoh. This guy is a stubborn little so-and-so. You can see even here that when Aaron's staff becomes a serpent, Pharaoh calls in all of his wise men and sorcerers and and magicians and all who practice these secret arts, something that Egypt was quite well known for at the time. And believe it or not, I think we find this quite shocking, these guys could reproduce the sign. Now, we have a lot of questions about that, don't we? We we wonder, well, first, we have the how question. How is this even possible? How are enemies of God enabled to perform miracles? And when you read through the literature, there's in commentaries, there's all kinds of explanations that scholars have about what could possibly be going on here, including the idea that this was just a sleight of hand or an optical illusion, or that these guys had a way of paralyzing snakes that that made them appear very stiff and straight. So they might have looked like a staff, but as soon as they were thrown down on the floor, they came alive. But I personally find all of those kinds of explanations to be, well, totally lacking. Because the text really seems to indicate that the feat was accomplished, and really accomplished, through secret arts. And notice also that the text is not embarrassed by that whatsoever. Isn't that weird? The the Bible seems way more comfortable than we are with the idea that there are such things as rulers and principalities and spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. The Bible is, is able to talk about those things without even blushing, and we, we struggle with it, and we try to explain it away. But no, do you understand that the devil, our ancient foe, that serpent, he he's more than willing to work with anyone that's under the delusion that they're God, and want to keep that delusion up. And so that leads us to the next question, why? Why does God allow this? Doesn't The fact that they can do this, doesn't that challenge God's authority? Doesn't it disprove what it was meant to prove, which is that um, Moses and Aaron are are specially approved agents of Yahweh? Well, unfortunately, we don't have access to all of our why questions. But this is is something that I do know, which is that the Lord is not phased at all by this. In fact, it seems like he's just kind of toying with them. It seems like he's just giving Pharaoh and his men enough rope to hang themselves. Neither does it neutralize Moses and Aaron's sign, nor does it result in just a tie. Because look at what happens next. Look at verse 12. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. You see, there's no question who is God indeed. And that's our third point, in case you're wondering. Yahweh is God indeed. Moses, he's God imaged. Pharaoh is God imagined. Yahweh, the Lord, is God indeed. Pharaoh has no clue who he's setting himself up against, but he is going to find out and pretty soon, the Lord uh, outlines what would happen next in verses 4 to 5. He says this, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and and bring my hosts. That's a military term. So God is presenting himself as a captain that's leading out his massive army, the people of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. This is how we need to see these upcoming plagues. These are the judgments of god against a people that refuse to acknowledge him and his people judgments and and you need to understand this also friend if you are a person here today that remains god's rival that that is what you need to prepare yourself for is for god to unleash great judgment Because he is is God indeed, and he brooks no rivals. And here's the purpose of of these signs. Look at verse 5 again. The purpose is that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. We're going to have our answer at the end of all of this. And when all of this is over, there's going to be no doubt whatsoever as to who is God indeed. This first sign really is just a preview of the, the final sign. And, and we get that from the fact that we read that the Lord snake swallowed all of the snakes of Pharaoh's magicians. And that word swallow is an interesting word. And it's it's really only just used one other place. And that is in chapter 15, verse 12. In the Song of Moses, this this is after the the Red Sea event. This is after the Exodus. Moses composes a a song of praise, and here are some of the lyrics. You stretched out your hand, and the earth swallowed them. And so you understand what the connection here? Pharaoh's snakes getting swallowed is just a preview of the time when Pharaoh and all of his people are going to be swallowed. And let me just point um, to another way that our, our passage helps us understand that Yahweh is God indeed. And if I could just boil it down to one word, it would be the word sovereign. God is, this is how you know that God is the true God. It's because he is absolutely and meticulously sovereign. You, you understand as you read through this passage, and in, indeed the whole Exodus, you, you can't help but notice that every single detail, right down to the smallest one, is something that God himself is not just aware of, but that God, the author of the story, is writing. This, this is all, most of the, what we've read here is, is prediction before it happened. And it's not mere prediction as if God just kind of knows an external timeline of events. No, he's the author. He's the author of it all. He knows it intimately because he has ordained it. He has sovereignly determined it. And so he knows everything. He knows even, do you get this? That even Pharaoh's response is something that God not just knows, but plays an active role in. It says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We read in scripture that even the king's heart is like a watercourse in the hands of a sovereign God who is able to, to make everything, every event go towards his glory and the display of his greatness. And then um, th- I think the text really highlights this. Um, and I, I get that all the way through, but especially the very last words. Look at verse 13 again. Look at the very, again, it, it talks about the Pharaoh's heart being hardened and his, his uh, stubborn response of refusing to listen. But here, look at these five words here at the end. As the Lord had said, none of this is taking God by surprise at all. He's got, it, he's got it all under control. And as Pastor Matt encouraged you at the beginning of the service, he's got, he's got your c- circumstance and your situation under control as well. You don't need to fret. You don't need to, you don't need to be anxious about anything You need to just trust the God who is God indeed. I love this. uh, I too want to add my name to the people that love that song of the month that we did uh, last month. God the uncreated one. And uh, here's one of the verses. A portion of it. Matchless in his majesty. Matchless. There is no contest. His power and authority. He's unshaken by the schemes of man. Pharaohs and his magicians, these guys are all scheming and shaking their fists against God and against his anointed, but he's unfazed. Yahweh is unshaken by the schemes of man. He's never changing. He's the great I am. Kingdoms rise. Kingdoms fall. Who's... Who hears about a great Egyptian empire today? Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. He is faithful through it all. Crown him king forever. And then I, then I love that how that song goes on to describe the incarnate God. And points us ultimately to our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who, as you know, took on flesh. He became perfect man. Perfect man. In, in other words, he, he's doing what, what our race was supposed to do from our creation. Jesus Christ is, is the exact image of God. He's the exact representation of his nature. And Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled all that God had sent him to do. He showed forth The glory of God. He perfectly represented his father so that it could be said that if you've seen him you've seen his father. You also understand that Jesus Christ is God indeed. That he he is the second person of the Trinity. He is the eternal unchanging great I am who took on flesh in order to ransom and to redeem uh, a bunch of stubborn so-and-sos like us, a bunch of delusional head cases who, who imagined for most of our lives that we were God or that we could be God, who suffered under the vain imagination that we were in, in control of our lives and our destiny, and at the same time we were shaking our fist at the one who had made us. And God himself, God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes to earth to to live a perfect life and then to die in the place of his enemies, us, rebels. And he goes to the cross and he bears in his body on that tree all of our sinfulness, all of our rebellion, all of our delusion so that we might be forgiven so that we might be redeemed, so that by repentance of our sins and faith in him, we could be called the, the sons of the living God. And we could, we could have be restored in our purpose of, of showing forth the glory of God by our lives, by all that we are and all that we do, that we would go forth into this world as his representatives, as his agents, as authenticated servants of his to declare everything that he has told us to say and do this is this is the glorious good news of the gospel and I trust that you are living in the light of it I trust that you have come to understand these things and believe them by faith and and live in the light of them you're if, if you're in Christ, folks, I want to just remind you as we close that you are in a good spot. You're, you're in the spot of victory. If you're, if you're united to Christ, then you are destined for the top spot because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be over all. And we know this because he's the Savior that has crushed the head of the serpent our ancient foe and by his resurrection what do we say the fact that Christ has triumphed over the grave we we can say that death is swallowed up in victory um, because we serve such a great God and such a great savior well I trust that you're in Christ today if you're not if you if the Lord is working by the power of his spirit in your heart and we'd love to have a chance to talk with you and pray with you. There'll be folks here on the front pew right after the service that would love to show you to our Savior.